Welcome to the Postscript, dear listener. Here we talk about posts and scripts. I would like to uh, talk about a script I find very fascinating. Oh, yeah. And that is hieroglyphics. Yeah, that's my favorite script. Papyrus. Papyrus, the font. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. Beautiful. Simple and elegant. And it leads a sort of exotic flair to any, you know, public document. Like your birth certificate, for instance. <laughs> yes. Written in hieroglyphics as typical in Norway. Yeah, as is tradition. Viking glyphics. Yeah. And you write your birth certificate yourself. That's super common, actually. Yeah. It's the first thing you write when you learn to write your name. Yeah. I mean, you're born with a name, but then you reach a certain age where you learn to write, and then you just make up your own name and, and backstory, much like the protagonists in funny games. <laughs> Very true. So, yeah. How's life? Yeah, life's pretty good. I've been uh, working a lot, teaching a bit film and doing a bit of animation, keeping fairly busy, I think. Cool, uh, cool. Yourself, how are you doing? I'm just, just enjoying the darkness of December. Mm, yeah. yeah. You know, the darkness in my soul as well as the weather. Yeah, you feel you get affected a lot by the weather. I actually like darkness. Mm. Uh, yeah, me uh, too, actually. But I mean, I do think weather has a sort of a physical impact on your well-being to some degree. Like when, it, when it's dark constantly. Yeah. I mean, you should take vitamin D, for instance. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I think human beings have positive effects of seeing the sun once in a while. Absolutely. But somehow like an element of, I'm not sure, romanticism about the dark season. Like it, I mean, it's inspiring in a way, I find. There's something beautiful about it to me. I think historically it ties in a bit with, you know, in the dark season, it was traditionally a time for storytelling and, you know, oral histories and stuff like that because you weren't outside working all the time. Often you had sort of put up stores for winter. I mean, in parts of the world where you have, you know, harsh seasons. Mm. That was often like a time for storytelling. Like you have the traditions of telling scary stories around the winter solstice and stuff. Mm -hmm. That turned into, you know, in the Victorian age where you had like Christmas ghost stories and stuff. Yeah, It's fascinating and I like it. You know, it's, it's atmospheric. Do you have any favorite ghost stories or examples of ghost stories you're fond of? I don't know. I, I like to listen to a lot of stories from real life about hauntings and stuff. Yeah. I, I like that. As far as like actual ghost stories, I don't know. I, I think like Charles Dickens has a, like a good store of them. Mm. The most traditional, you know, with Scrooge and... Uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah. That's like a typical Victorian ghost story. Mm. I do actually like the one with Patrick Stewart. I think it's BBC. They usually show that around Christmas. Mm, mm. Maybe there's some good adaptations of that. Yeah. As far as I know, he does like a, a one-man show of that every Christmas. <laughs> well, so, still. I'm not sure he does it now because mm. he's, what, in his 80s or something? Uh. But yeah. You know what I rewatched recently? Uh, tell me. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, the first film. Yeah. yeah. That was actually really interesting because I think the last sort of Tolkien movies I saw were The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And uh, the difference between the two franchises is so stark. Like, yeah, there's yeah. so much that really works mm. in the first Lord of the Rings movie. Like, there's so many choices that mm. are just really right. The visual effects look great. Like, they look so good compared to the Hobbit movies. Yeah, the music is great. The production the music is, is beautiful. It's like, the score is like one of the most iconic scores of all time. The casting is great. Mm. Like, there's some choices that I really hate, like... Uh, the way they made Mary and Pippin into these sort of joke characters almost. Mm. Uh, they do a lot of that. That sort Gimli. of randomly yeah. drop into the fellowship. 
There's a few really good scenes, like yeah, like, some really good, and like some classic delivered lines, mm. like from um, Ian McKellen, for instance. He's great as Gandalf. He's pitch perfect. Yeah, he looks the part so well. Mm. Like in the Hobbit movies, he just looks tired, <laughs> and like I he doesn't why. want to be there. <laughs> and you know, we talked about this before. He d- really didn't want to be yeah. there. He found it a miserable experience oh. standing in front of a green screen all the time. In the Lord of the Rings, he's in a, like a physical location, mm-hmm. really acting with other actors, like a proper classically trained actor, which he is. Well, you know, I have a bunch of issues with the Lord of the Rings films. The Fellowship is the one I like the best. Yeah, same. Something about the mode is still a bit too, it's not fair to say glossy exactly, but there's something about removing the mystery and veneer and some of the, I don't know, mundanity almost about Tolkien's vision. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not really my point because no, I, I yeah. totally agree with that. And I yeah. always, always have felt like that. Mm. There are some choices they've had to make in making this into a sort of palatable movie for a wider audience. Yeah, or right? like an extremely successful movie, which it is, of course. Yeah, so. but there's some things about it that yeah. are just so right, yeah. I noticed. Like, there are some really nice shots, for instance. The way they handled the ring yeah. in the movie is really well done. It's great. Because they used a lot of different models for it. Like, mm. they had some models who were actually huge, mm-hmm. and they were filmed with macro lenses. Yeah. So the effect is, like, really dramatic mm. when they, like, slow zoom in mm. on this ring that there's something off about it. Mm. Small things like that are just really mind-blowing, the way they handle that. You know, I think you'll be hard-pressed to find a film that's more aware and clever about the use of practicals and miniatures combined with computer effects or subtle elements. It's easy to forget, but Peter Jackson, you know, he did all sorts of movies, some more dramatic, some more comedy, some splatter stuff. But he was always testing out effects. And, you know, he had this Muppet movie, Meet the Feebles, where they, you know, smoke marijuana and have sex and stuff. All all his first movies are really full of practical effects, you know, Ratesa and Brain Dead. And he does like mockumentaries. And so he has like a base understanding of practicality of stuff in front of the lens. A long experience with using them in movies. Yeah. Uh, And it's utilized so well in this film there's no doubt about that really and there's so much you know passion and love put into the various props and stuff yeah and researched amazingly yeah totally and i would say you know the stuff that really doesn't hold up for the most part is um, some instances of 3d graphics and stuff that just aren't quite up to par but i would say some of the things that really work in the lord of the rings that just isn't there in the hobbit movies Mm. It's the pacing, because even though they're like quite fast paced in comparison to the books, Mm. there are a lot of like just shots of landscapes, of atmosphere, of of like stuff that is really more evocative than plot functional, if you know what I mean. And it really sets the sort of tone in a very good way quite quickly, but it is quite expertly paced in the beginning there. I agree. And yeah. it is very evocative and the way it kind of seduces you into the mythology of Tolkien is super effective, I think. Totally. Yeah. And, and the, just the use of landscapes mm. because that was a hugely important thing for Tolkien was landscapes. Yeah. And yeah. He was a landscape painter and uh, he loved uh, describing and really visualizing how they looked. So those things just really mesh well with the book and really capture that essence very well. Mm. And it just really brought home to me how much I fucking hate the Hobbit movie. <laughs> I only saw the first one and I didn't much enjoy it. I think I, I haven't actually managed to finish the last one. Mm. It's just too horrific. Mm. But you know, I've recently been dabbling in an adaptation which I find to be amazingly good. Is it the movie with Nicolas Cage? No. It's a game. It's called Hades. Oh, yeah, yeah. By a company called Supergiant Games. 
and they made games like Bastion and Transistor and stuff. And I guess I've always liked their ambition, but never quite loved their games. I like some of the stuff they do. They have a distinct visual style, but gameplay-wise... <laughs> Yeah, I've always known about it, but I haven't actually played any of it. Although Hades has been really making, you know... uh, Well, there's a good reason for it. And part of it is, you know, just an adaptation of the Greek mythology, which is great. Like the characterization of the different characters. There's maybe a couple that are a little bit, I don't know, mundane. But overall, it's so amazing. Like Dionysus and Theseus and Eurydice and, you know, a bunch of the that are maybe not so well known to people not interested in. I mean, everyone knows who Zeus is and probably... And all the other ones. <laughs> these ones that are often referred to in popular culture, but... There were a lot of Greek gods. But this one has, of course, not the entire pantheon, but has a lot of the ones that are still prominent, but not as widely used in popular culture. But the thing that's, I mean, first of all, the gameplay is tight as fuck. You know, it really works. They've tightened a lot since Bastion or whatever, but it's conceptually so perfect. It's what you call a roguelike. So there are randomly generated levels. And the story is you're playing the son of Hades, the god of the underworld. His name is Zagreus. And he's fed up with his dad. We don't know quite why to begin with, but they've had a quarrel. And Zagreus has decided, I'm leaving the underworld. I don't want to live here. And his father's this grumpy old guy, this huge god who's angry at him and he's very dismissive. So Zagreus is kind of trying to fight his way out. And every time he dies, he returns back to the underworld. That's where he lives. In a narrative sense, you're already a good fit for like a roguelike genre. But everything fits conceptually like the use of different weapons that all have their different stories that kind of evolve like all the genre tropes of a rogue like dying in this game it's the best form of dying you can imagine because you're always <laughs> excited about coming back to the hub world of Hades talking to the other characters where you're developing relationships you're learning new bits of lore and sometimes it's almost like I'm not sure I really did it, but sometimes I felt like, okay, I can't actually wait to go back to talk to some more or learn some more. So I'm just going to mention just a few things that I think make this from good to outstanding. Like yeah. One example is the use of weapons. So the different weapons, there's like five or six basic weapons, right? And they can all be sort of leveled up into different modes. And they're also empowered differently by boons you get from the gods. So Zeus, he gives you lightning boons. And you you have like your standard attack, your heavy attack, your special attack and your dash, which can also be an attack. So already you have so many layers of variations where different boons and different weapons and different uh, types of attack interact into a way. And it's always for each time it's random what kind of boons you get. So like the layer of creativity of mixing and matching different stuff. So does different stuff have like different synergies yeah. they work together? Yeah, yeah, they do. And some of these boons, they also match up as a duo boon. There's a lot of like complexity. The system is really intricate. It's really large and it's extremely satisfying. And sometimes you're really overpowered. I mean, you're just charging through everything. But and that's s- the best part of roguelites yeah. and roguelites. And sometimes you're quite underpowered and you don't get so far. But it doesn't matter so much because when you get back to the hub, it's always interesting. And the way it managed to have tight gameplay with a narrative and the adaptation of Greek mythology, that's really good. You know, Orpheus is one of the central myths that I've been really interested in, in my own, you know, personal interest in, in stories and stuff. And in this, he's kind of like, to begin with, he's this kind of annoying 
emo, goth-looking kind of guy. <laughs> and he's whiny. And he doesn't want to sing because he's sad about you know, having, you know, the story of Orpheus is, you know, he travels to the underworld because his wife died. And when he takes her back, he has to not look at her again. And he does accidentally. And so this is after all that's happened. They're both dead, Eurydice and Orpheus. But they're separated. So they're different characters. You meet different places. But you have the opportunity to kind of mend those bonds. And the music in this game is really good and specifically like one of the songs of Eurydice and also the first time you hear Orpheus sing it's really beautiful and then the perception kind of changes a bit you're kind of annoyed by this guy at first and then no, it's, it's actually beautiful uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently he had a quite good reason to be sort of emo he had a great reason but how, how is the underworld handled because that's mm. one of the things I always found fascinating yeah. about Greek mythology is the way that the sort of afterlife is pretty depressing but it's not like hell it's, it's more like this shade this shadow state yeah Greek mythology is really large and has many different elements to it and they've categorized it a little bit it's almost like a Dante's Inferno situation with different levels of hell so you have the basic level which is Tartarus and that's basically the normal underworld where in proper Greek mythology everyone who dies they go to Tartarus you just become like this shade and there are lots of these shades about and they can't really do anything they grumble a bit about how they died and stuff you can listen to the conversations (laughs) a bit and then you have another level which is Asphodel which is this fiery hell type of situation and there's like an undead hydra it's the boss like a bone hydra and then the third level is Elysium which is where like the heroes go which is like flowery and beautiful and kind of serene but also you know a lot of violence and then at the very top you have this maze-like structure i mean it it functions a bit different than the other levels i'm not going to go into that so it kind of frames it in a familiar way that's easy to understand it has the river Styx and the river flamenon they kind of serve different functions it's great in a way to teach you a lot about greek mythology it's really well researched but it's also really well characterized so it frames things not necessarily exactly how You know, there's so many different interpretations anyway, but it adds a layer of interpretation both in the geography of it, but also in like the characterization. Like you have a lot of classic characterizations of Zeus, for example. In this guy, I mean, he's basically your uncle. So he's he's friendly towards you and kind of uh, supporting you, but he's a pompous ass, really. I mean, getting his powers is great. I mean, the lighting powers are some of the best. So I'm always happy to see him. <laughs> uh, uh, and the way you, you can tell there's like a side to him that's really like self-serving. And... But I mean, the Greek gods were self-serving yeah. and were incredibly yeah. human and also very like varied in their depictions yeah. and how they were talked about and, and revered because even though they were, they were revered because they were gods not because they were good uh, people <laughs> yeah good good they weren't good uh personalities or like they were petty and whatever morally um, compromised I think yeah but say. they they were powerful gods yeah that's what you respect them. yeah and they could help you it was often very transactional yeah Absolutely. And that element is here as well. And there's an interesting thing that, you know, there's a few of these classical Greek stories about Agamemnon, for example, where he, he's put in an impossible situation. He has to choose one god over the other. It's a great story. I'm not going to get into it here. But the, it has a mechanic that reflects this, where you can come into a room and there are two boons and you have to pick one or the other. And the one you pick is very grateful and the other one is really pissed off. So he or she sends his power after you and you have to fight them off a bit and then you get that boon as well. So it kind of uses some of these elements. It, that's what I mean. It's I mean, really... that's so, so so like typical of Greek mythology yeah. that just that squabbling between the gods and if you are sort of one of the gods heroes then the other gods who are sort of jealous of that god mm. will work against you and yeah. that, I always found that very funny like the Greek pantheon is so so funny in that way and and relatable and varied and mm. vivid in a way that also 
like there's a lot of commonalities between the Greek pantheon and the Norse mm, pantheon. Absolutely. And you were talking about like the various levels of the underworld, mm. which is very similar in Norse mythology. Yeah. Like you have these different types of afterlife. Mm. Like when you go to where you're a warrior or whatever, if you're just a regular mm. uh, humdrum peasant, you go there and depending on what you do in life. But a, a common theme also is like usually it's just a boring place or a, a dreadful place, yeah. but it's not really, you're not getting tormented or whatever. Mm. You're just sort of waiting around, doing nothing, yeah, being bored. Just a husk. And, yeah, and often complaining about stuff. <laughs> I think it's in the Aeneid where he goes to the underworld and visits uh, Achilles and Achilles is like all the shit I did was a hero on earth and stuff it didn't matter like it was all pointless I'm just a fucking shade yeah, <laughs> yeah. Achilles is actually in this and there's a lot of characters and some of the characters are not explicitly in it they're kind of referenced to in different ways and you know one of the things it does so good I mean good roguelites do this but this is a kind of a perfection of it I think it's a lot of complexity to the gameplay and to the narrative, but it paces it out slowly and surely. And there's always a new character in front of you, like this fishing mini game. You know there's something about fishing and stuff, but you don't get to use it properly. And the way that there's always something interesting that you're curious about and want to learn more about and want to test out. And it's kind of constantly dripping. And there's even to those things, there are new layers revealed so that you're always interested in gameplay. It has a great try again not just because it's satisfying, but because you're curious. I really love the way you described the death system because mm. that's one of the things that, like, a lot of game design is just so traditional. Like, it's difficult to think outside the box. Mm. But I love it when games incorporate normal gameplay modes that are usually boring yeah, yeah. or leading you to start again or whatever, incorporating it into the game as a, an actual game mechanic that serves to function story or, mm. or is actually interesting. Like, it's not the best example, but dying in Dark Souls, for instance, mm. is sort of baked into the game. Mm. You're expected to die a lot yeah. and often, and it has a reason, and you you don't really die. You're already dead. Yeah, and I guess my favorite example of this is, uh, I haven't played the remakes, I should say, but the Demon Souls. And it has a hub world that's a little bit similar to Hades. I mean, Hades is a much more complex hub, but it has, like, characters that you meet and talk to as you buy their stuff, you get to learn more about them. I think that's, it's probably my favorite from software hub world and the music's just great i like it I, I like a really good hub world in a game yeah too many hub worlds are boring yeah you spend a lot of time there so they better be one of the best parts of the yeah game. i think that's the third episode of our fictional game podcast the best hub worlds of games yeah. <laughs> one of the other episodes we have uh overheard conversations in games and yeah. Uh, yeah i'm completely down for that yeah no, but anyway, I think you'd love it. And, you know, a lot of people say Game of the Year. I mean... Yeah, I've heard it in these discussions. Yeah. But yeah, I would actually, like, one of the things that I really enjoy about Greek mythology and Norse mythology yeah. is all the stories, yeah, all the yeah, characters. Yeah. It's yeah. so colorful. Mm. And it's one of the things I always thought about in comparison to typical Abrahamic faiths mm. that are, you know, monotheistic, mm. that it's very moralistic, it's very idealistic... And it's very faultless. But the stories are not very interesting in, well, th in that aspect uh, of it, like compared to the sort of complexity of these different gods interacting with each other. But I would say that that's like just at the core of it because people love stories. So so what you've done in Christianity, for instance, well, you have all these weird saints, for instance, yeah, that do all thing. sorts of crazy things. Yeah. And in uh, Islam, for instance, you have all stories about the followers of Muhammad mm. and uh, his sons and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
all these imams and everything. Like you have a lot of mythology and stories around these things. So humans always have this sort of will or tendency that is not possible to sort of curtail in any meaningful mm -hmm. way of creating stories and sort of weird micro gods in their own right. Absolutely. Like saint wor yeah. worship and stuff just takes the place of these minor deities in Greek mythology, for instance. There seems to be this innate will or need to have minor modes of worship in daily life. I guess there are not so many exciting stories about the monotheistic god in and of itself. It's kind of just an absolute that's perfect. Well, there and are stories in, like, in the Old Testament, but basically he's just a bit of an asshole. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean... Is wrathful. He maybe doesn't have as many modes or complexities, but the Bible or the Quran, there are many extremely fascinating, interesting stories about like the old kings and, as you yeah. say, the saints. And they are more similar to like the pantheon of the Greek gods, like the faulty people that are troubled in different ways and try to do something. And maybe they're like really miserable and stupid, or maybe they're like really great people that yeah, put in difficult and, situations. And often there's a lot more variety in the sort of stories yeah. that exist because a lot of Abraham faith stories are about being really pious yeah. and holy and you know praying every day yeah. and achieving some sort of communion with god or whatever and some some miracle mm. you know i would also say like the way especially the bigger churches of uh, like the bigger institutionalized uh, versions of these religions have have viewed this sort of storytelling and, and minor uh, sort of idol worshiping as very problematic and huh? not something to be encouraged of course, that's been true to varying degrees. Like the Catholic Church during the Renaissance, for instance, was very interested in supporting the arts. Mm. And, um, so that's always been... Well, representation has always been important. I mean, even, you know, in the cases where you're not supposed to have, like, figurative representation yeah. of deities or gods, like, then you have, like, these beautiful mosaic patterns and stuff, and they kind of convey maybe the more spirituality and those yeah, things. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's not really what I'm referring to, uh, because uh, in the Renaissance, you had a much more widening variety of things depicted in art supported by yeah. the church that yeah, wasn't yeah. necessarily religious. But you also have the merchant class that comes at that point. They have a strong economy and they have their own interest in being portrayed. So the diversity of who gets to decide what's made Certainly. branches out a lot. Absolutely, because before that point, you know, the church was basically the only patron of the arts yeah. and art was supposed to be didactic and teach you about mm. the Bible or whatever. And also in Islam, you didn't really have much like you said, figurative art, it was forbidden. So mm. you had a lot of like beautiful mosaic and geometrical patterns mm. and stuff that was more meant to convey the beauty of God's work, mm. but not really. I mean, a beautiful geometric pattern is great, but it doesn't really tell a compelling story on its own, you know? Yeah, hard pressed to. I'm sure there is an example. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I, I love abstract and non-figurative art. I mean, yeah. it can certainly tell a story. Like when I uh, went to the Tate Modern and saw, you know, Rothko paintings for mm -hmm. the first time in real life, like that's an almost spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And it certainly tells like a very compelling personal, like it, it has a, like a personal interaction with you that's mm. very hard to explain in words. But that's sort of a different type of storytelling or interaction than these good old myths and these good old gods doing all sorts of weird shit. I mean, that's an interesting point. There's some things you can't really communicate with narrative of words or figurative images, like I guess what you would refer to in that sense as the spiritual experience of an abstract painting. Like You can't communicate that thing in language with words per se. It's more of a 
sense yeah. than it is right. like a specific thing. It's very sensory. Yeah. That's always very interesting. And sometimes in our culture, you know, the narrative, the plot, the character, these things are so, they're so highly valued, right? It's important to include some of the more difficult to grasp stuff as well. Yes, certainly. So I actually saw a really good video essay on YouTube oh, yeah. about modern art. Hmm. It's called Who's Afraid of Modern Art? Vandalism, Video Games and Fascism. Okay. It talks about how modern art can be so incredibly subversive especially to people with more like conservative outlooks on mm. life in general, mm. where art is supposed to be teaching you moral lessons or supposed to be beautiful on a sort of aesthetic level, then art that is subversive when it comes to aesthetics is often denigrated by cultural movements that are interested in maintaining a status quo. Mm. And Jacob Gillen talks a lot about how people have vandalized abstract art throughout yeah. the ages and how sort of it's been viewed as this incredibly nihilistic uh, mode of expression that, you know, anyone can do it and it's just bullshit and it's just debased in a way, you know, it's like a moral fall from grace almost that we mm. deal with these modes of art. Mm -hmm. But in fact, a lot of these artists were not just very interested in actually conveying stuff with their art, but they were, a lot of them were deeply religious mm. and really had a spiritual connection to the way they made their art. And a lot of it was very technical and difficult to do, even though people might view it as simplistic. I just find it very interesting. And one of the things I you know, really find disappointing is when people talk shit about modern art mm. just because they don't immediately like it or find it simple because usually you'll find they haven't really done any research or they don't really know anything about it and it's just more of a i don't know like an impulse to shit talk it because yeah i mean it's kind of a trope as well you know modern art today it's shit yeah know. and it's usually people who aren't really interested in art making mm. those sort of statements and certainly there is a lot of shit modern art well, but shit that, that doesn't really you know devalue good modern art or even devalue modern art at all like just because something is bad doesn't mean mode of expression is valueless like just because somebody can't play a fucking instrument doesn't mean all guitar music is bad <laughs> so it's just as a facile viewpoint that i often hear like it's so common i think it's interesting this idea of good or bad as well because it's so much of a, um, a social thing like a social marker that you know metal is good rap is bad you know that, that kind of uh yeah i hate this rap crap yeah that, that's a <laughs> that's a very general i mean i'm not sure anyone maybe kids i don't know who talks like that but i remember that was kind of a thing in the 90s anyway yeah. that you're talking about culture is also marking your place in, in social but you know my suspicion about people who let's say have a conservative view on art is that what they want is something that's decorative and self-serving and the depiction of a safe established image of beauty yeah that just reinforces your already held ideas of what is good and what is beautiful totally and it's also usually based on some sort of misunderstanding of a time period like some sort of idealized version of greco-roman culture mm. or romantic 
painting. Like so much of what this, what you say, cultural conservatism mm. is just so arbitrary in the markers it chooses to identify what is good and what is bad. Like you would choose painting was good in the past because it looked really lifelike when they painted human beings. So that would make it like, okay, art and especially painting in the like early parts of the 19th century was really good because wow, we it really looked almost like a photo. Yeah, but which these is, days you get hyper-realism, which is a lot more realistic, uh, almost uncomfortably so. Huh? Yeah, but it seems almost like the sort of arbiter of what is quality and what is not is just pure skill level on the sort of level of an athlete almost. It's almost like you're the world's quickest painter, you're the world's most precise painter. Yeah, how difficult is this to do on a technical level? That's how I can tell whether it's good or bad. Yeah. If it looks like something that's easy to do on a technical level, then that's not really skill. And if it's not really skill, then... Uh, I don't give a shit. That's... Not even that. What is it then? It's some sort of weird... Yeah. That to me sort of brings the point that a lot of criticism of modern art is just rooted in fear of change, fear of what's different, fear of not understanding something. That's why I find it so banal at times when people talk shit about modern art, because what's good and bad aesthetically is so arbitrary. But I think also there's a, there's a level of, you know, when something that you don't like that other people value very highly and, you know, it costs a lot of money. It has a lot of institutional representation, like through galleries or through. Uh, exhibitions or whatever and it's something that you value very low there's like a passive or maybe directly aggressive element to that so that it feels threatening in a way because i mean there's no doubt that there's a connection between class and culture and yeah. appreciation that's not a, a value good or bad but for a lot of people, it's also a criticism of class because a lot of these, you know, abstract paintings sell for like millions and millions of dollars. And a lot of the modern art scene is a lot of money laundering and buying paintings at incredibly inflated prices just to stow them away as a sort of... Uh... As an investment. Yeah, right. It, art is so much an investment these days that it, like the art market feels really uh, inhuman at times. There's certainly valid criticisms of that. It's interesting. I, I was at this uh, tour a few weeks back of corporate art. You know, there's an entire scene of art, which is corporations buying art that they internally kind of rotate between their offices. It's not really for the public consumption. It's for their workers. And also they give themselves a higher status, but also kind of make the workplace an enjoyable place. Having these some larger fixed things like an installation or like a huge sculpture in the cafeteria. But it gives them cultural capital. Sure. But I would say and it's an interesting scene because it's in some ways very inaccessible also to the art scene and to artists mm. so we we went this tour around Telenor and Equinor which is uh, the Norwegian national oil company Equinor and Telenor is the big phone company I guess a communications company in Norway and the arrangers they couldn't get access into the buildings but they have a bunch of stuff outside and we were walking around talking about this like a, a group chat and there's so many elements that are really interesting about this for example like a lot of these works of art uh, some of them you know really beautiful or whatever some of them by really famous artists some of them you know more local but they're very rarely marked with the name of the artist and the name of the piece there are signs that look like, oh, I'm going to check out who made this. But then it's something that says, don't touch the artwork or you're being watched by cameras. And there's a <laughs> lot of cameras. And there was this specific oh. piece, which was like this play garden with these huge like tubes you could go into and like this checkered board and stuff oh. that looks like somewhere a kid would play. And it says very explicitly, don't play. And there's like, I don't know, six, seven cameras looking at you and you're feeling really watched. That's some dystopic shit. Uh, 
well, it's really common, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's common, but it's just so hostile yeah. in this yeah. class and sort of wealth sense. Like, you are not part of the chosen few who can even fucking engage with this art. Yeah, you're not supposed to engage with it in that way. And that's the difference, because, like, the intention of the artist is somehow subverted by the corporate context it sits in. Certainly, and... unless you say it has this cultural capital. Mm. But at the same time, it's also investment, right? So yeah. There's all these extraneous deliberations that go into mm. this art. So it's so removed from our usual conception of how art works. Yeah, it's really interesting, I think. And sort of depressing. It's also quite varied how well maintained the art pieces were. There was one piece by Pipilotto Ristu, this famous artist who does a lot of like video installations. She's great. She might end up as a recommendation actually on the podcast at some point. Uh, interesting works. And they had this uh, at Equinor. They had this entrance part with these huge installations in kind of some ceiling bits, which are photos but also supposed to be videos but the video panels are not active and the light sources behind the photo panels only a few of them still light up so they're not maintaining the artwork either and you know it's quite colorful and intense so it might have been just a practical thing that you know we don't want this in our everyday life or maybe it's just laziness it's difficult to know it's uh, impenetrable like the intentions well it seems to be like there's a lack of personal love for it or whatever and, and well, you know you're not dealing with a person you're dealing with this faceless mm, entity yeah, of yeah. like a huge corporation which is so just ominous mm. in its own sense it's inapproachable in a way yeah totally and the way that intersects with mm. art which is his personal mode of expression mm. absolutely fascinating and uh, creepy it reminds me of architecture like the architecture of power mm. and how that always has been through the ages a way of expressing wealth and power in society as a symbolism how that works mm. and i mean this is part of it how giant corporations interact with art but they always have, well, not corporations necessarily, but like power structures in yeah. society, of course, always interacted with art. It's an important way for power to both represent itself and also to give itself legitimacy. Yeah, certainly. It is a way of legitimizing your standing in society and a way of echoing that message throughout to people who can't necessarily like you don't communicate with directly. You do it indirectly, right? Fascinating. It is. Just like the way the Catholic Church communicated with its members that couldn't read. Oh, yeah. And you had to communicate Bible messages yeah, yeah, yeah. purely through art. And sermons, of course. Yeah, but you couldn't really directly communicate with them because they weren't able to read. The only sort of personal interaction they had with church was art. Well, I guess that's the postscript for now. Music for this episode was by Umulium. That's Sveda Ogod and Neil Scanning. If you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com or check out our Instagram, Instagram slash unpleasantmovies. My name is Thomas Simonson Barnbra. My name is Sveda Ogod. And, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.